Okay. Uh, hi, everybody. Um, uh, welcome to the next installment of the Cato Populism and the Fed Monetary uh, Conference. Uh, so this panel, I think, is extremely well-timed because we're at a period when inflation is not just historically high, a 30-year high of 6% in October, but a period when fiscal deficit and debts are also extremely large, with the debt to GDP at around 100% of GDP and the Congressional Budget Office projecting deficits at around 5% of GDP for, the, for a very long time. And so the natural question to uh, raise is, is there a connection between extremely expansionary fiscal policy and the inflation issues that are going on right now? And what are the risks of the interaction between those two things going forward? Uh, to discuss this, we have a, a terrific panel, um, John Cochran uh, from the University of Chicago, Fernando Martin, Assistant Vice President at the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis, Mark Sobel, Sobel, U.S. Chairman of Official Monetary and Financial Institutions Forum, and David Beckworth, Research Fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Um, you can, uh, after their, they will each um, spend a bit of time to make their uh, remarks. I will then ask them some questions about what they've said, but then I would like all of you to join the conversation. You can do that by submitting your questions via Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube using the hashtag Cato Moncon, C-A-T-O, capital M-O-N, capital C-O-N, with the hashtag uh, mark in front. Um, on YouTube, Facebook, and Sledo, you can, they have chat boxes that you can use. And then um, we will uh, turn to those questions after our, our first round. So uh, let's get started, and uh, uh, we'll start with uh, John Cochran. Well, hi, everybody. Thank you very much. Uh, I just have to correct that I now am not at the University of Chicago. I work for the Hoover Institution. And I only need to say that because they oh, my apologies. Sorry about that. No, no, it's no problem. They, they pay my salary. So I always <laughs> have to give them thank you for that. Uh, so um, why are we getting inflation? Um, it seems pretty obvious. Uh, the government printed up two trillion, depending on you count it, two to five trillion dollars, uh, sent it to people in their checking accounts. This is a Friedman helicopter drop. Duh, we got inflation. Uh, people are talking about supply shocks and supply constraints, but that wouldn't be a problem if people weren't trying to buy stuff. And in fact, inflation is always uh, demand. There's a mistake going on, uh, mistaking aggregate demand for relative demand. If the, if the ports are clogged, what happens is the price of TVs goes up relative to wages so that people buy less TVs. Uh, but when, the, when prices and wages are all going up together, uh, that has much less to do with little supply shocks. So this is about print up a ton of money, give it to people, you get inflation. Uh, now, I'm, I'm fiscal theory at the price level, so that seems pretty obvious. This is also experiment number one of, of fiscal theory. That leads to the question, I mean, whether it's money or debt doesn't really matter. Um, but the central question is, why do people think the government is not going to repay the debt uh, this time? Why does this fiscal expansion give us inflation and 2008-9 didn't? Um, well, uh, you actually can see a difference. Back then, at least there was the decency to talk about deficit now repayment later. Uh, and this time, it's perfectly, there's just nothing out of Washington saying that this is deficit now repayment later. Uh, so uh, I think it, it's pretty clear this is money the government is not planning to repay. Uh, a little bit of it is, is who got the money. People likely to spend it quickly got the money. Uh, but, but really, that's uh, the, the, the absence of any talk about how this is a temporary borrowing that will be repaid, I think, is also crucial. Now, uh, inflation is always monetary and fiscal policy. Uh, the Fed is an astounding institutional failure right now. The number one job of the Fed is supposed to be figure out where aggregate supply is, put in just enough demand, 
you'd think there were thousands of PhDs totting up how many containers can get through the ports and getting filling the demand cup up just enough, but you would be wrong. That's not how the Fed works. And this was a complete surprise to the Fed, who is still not seeing it. This is a Maginot line. This is a Pearl Harbor. <laughs> the Fed is still, its grand strategy was exquisitely timed to, to fight the last war against deflation. And they weren't even thinking about what's our contingency plan. And they just said, oh, no, well, inflation will never happen, so don't do it. Uh, Jackson Hole was all about running down the Phillips curve to in inclusive growth. Uh, they were simply asleep at the wheel. Uh, and it's not that hard. Uh, it's hard for me because I'm terrible at forecasting, but Larry Summers called it. So uh, seeing that this was going to lead to inflation, uh, it, it was not that hard. And, and it is partly also due to the Fed uh, missing it. Now, future, will this continue? Um, uh, well, if you, if you print up $5 trillion and, and give it to people, that leads to a one-time price level rise. Um, as it's about 25% of the debt, so that would say about a 25% cumulative price level rise. Uh, we've had 6% cumulative so far, so a ways to go. But will it continue after that? With that question, we're going to think about monetary and fiscal policy. Uh, and uh, what we have now is more and more deficits uh, for the foreseeable future, and then the entitlements come and kick in. And now that we've crossed the line to deficits that people do not think will be repaid, it seems to me those deficits are more likely to be inflationary than deficits that people do think will be replayed. What about the Fed? You read the fiscal Fed's strategy review, it reads like a bad movie from the 1970s. Uh, let inflation run hot for a while to drive down a static Phillips curve. We believe now in shortfalls, in clipping the peaks, not stabilizing the middle. There's no such thing as a too hot economy. We're gonna wait for inflation to get really bad before doing anything about it. Pull away the punch bowl at nine o'clock in the morning, not when the party is really going. Uh, discretion rules, because there's no real rules here. I mean, that is exactly what the Fed did in the 1970s. Now they do uh, talk about expectations, and but they seem to think that expectations come from pleasant speeches about how it's all anchored. Where does anchoring come from? It, uh, anchoring comes from the belief that if inflation gets bad, the Fed is willing to replay 1980. So let's ask ourselves, uh, will the Fed really replay 1980? And how will that look this time with much larger debt and deficits overhanging the whole business? Uh, well, uh, will the Fed raise interest rates a lot and stick them there, even if it takes a big recession? And will Congress let the Fed do that? That's what it took in the 1980s. The Fed is now deep into inclusive growth and Congress even more so. So I think that's doubtful. Um, we're here to talk about fiscal policy. Now there's another big difference from now 1980, much worse now. If you raise interest rates, you raise the interest costs on the debt. And a property of all of our models is that higher interest rates do not lower inflation unless they also trigger a fiscal tightening. The most important part is if you raise interest rates that raises interest costs on the debt, the Congress has to tighten fiscal policy to pay those interest costs. And if it doesn't do it, the raising interest rates doesn't work to lower inflation. Well, with 100% debt to GDP, raise interest rates 5%, that costs a trillion bucks a year. So if the next Fed chair says, I need 5% interest rates, is Congress really gonna tighten by a trillion bucks a year to help out? That seems unlikely. Uh, in addition, of course, uh, the, the fiscal policy has to repay a higher return to bondholders. If there was inflation, 
bonds uh, start to uh, start to reflect that inflation. If you dis if you lower inflation, bondholders get a windfall, and that's exactly what happened in the 1980s. Great years for bondholders. Will Congress really raise taxes and cut spending to pay a real windfall to the fat cat bondholders, uh, as well as tolerate the horrible unemployment that that are, it will handle? The lesson of 1980 was quite simple. Inflation stabilization, when it comes, is always monetary, but also fiscal and also microeconomic. The trifecta of policies is what stopped inflation in the 1980s. You need the fiscal policy reform, as we had in the 1980s, and you need economic growth so that tax rates translate into tax revenues and also have the fiscal tightening. Uh, now, is our system ready to do that if inflation breaks out? Uh, in it with the much larger fiscal uh, fiscal background that that's that, that 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 takes it would take solving the structural deficits it would take freeing up the microeconomy and it would take a hard nosed monetary policy for a couple of years that's what anchoring takes and and as soon as people figure out that that's not going to happen then of course expectations go their own way and we get inflation so I think we are in fact in a danger of repeating the 1970s, and we all almost seem to be doing it. Biden's already going after the oil companies uh, for raising prices to <laughs> transitory shocks. Uh, middlemen, I give, price controls are coming soon. Uh, anything but the simple monetary, fiscal, microeconomic reform that it takes to stop inflation. Uh, thanks very much, John. Um, so our next guest is uh, Fernando Martin. He is the Assistant Vice President of the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis. Fernando, please go ahead. All right. Well, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. And just a reminder, I'm just speaking for myself, not the Fed. So, you know, I I'm going to concentrate on basically whether the actual inflation and the expected higher rates of inflation for the future have a fiscal uh, origin. And we all know the context. I mean, John covered it pretty well. So we had a sharp and deep recession, followed by a rapid recovery. And what did the government do? Well, massive federal assistance programs, deficits that were about $3 trillion uh, last year and this year, debt that surpassed 100% of GDP. The Fed reacted also with near zero interest rates, uh, opening temporary credit facilities, you know, restarting the asset buying programs or QE. So many, many of the same things we saw in the financial crisis. Uh, the result, in terms of inflation was, well, initially, you know, due to the characteristics of the pandemic and the mitigation strategies we implemented, prices actually declined, you know, for quite a while. And, and then they started growing and they started growing at an accelerated pace. And that's what we're, where we are now. Uh, there were many outliers when you look at monthly inflation. And that's mostly what led to some people to think that this was transitory. They were seeing kind of the headline numbers of certain goods going up by, you know, uh, ridiculous numbers. But when you look at the whole period, you know, many of those increases, uh, you know, went away. Uh, so when you look at the whole period, you know, inflation is high. We're running at something like since the start of the pandemic at an annual rate of 3%. So when you look at their actual rate since this thing started, uh, which is high relative to the target and relative to what we used to uh, have. And, uh, you know, durables maybe explain half of that, but it's way more widespread than that. So food has gone up, energy has gone up, and non-durables and services have also uh, accelerated the rate of growth. And, you know, uh, I wouldn't dismiss supply chain disruptions and shifts in expenditure habits, but at the end of the day, when you look at the microdata, you see that 
demand plays a role, a big role, right? So uh, goods that have increased in price are also the goods for whose quantities we see the biggest increases, okay? So, so you know, when the price and the quantity go up, that's demand. <laughs> and, uh, you know, survey and market-based expectations have all caught up to actual inflation. So this is not just uh, a phenomenon that is circumscribed to a few, uh, a few goods. So let's relate this to, to the fiscal side, right? So we understand there are various links between fiscal and monetary policy, you know, senior age, inflating the debt away, the actual interest rate policy, as John was mentioning. And, you know, the, our theories help us explain those links. So what's, uh, so, so the topic of this, uh, this conference and, and this panel in particular is about fiscal dominance. And that occurs when the fiscal authority basically forces the central bank to accommodate monetary policies to suit its own preferred outcomes, right? So I know what I'm gonna do and the central bank just needs to, you know, do whatever it takes to let me do what I want. How do we typically avoid that? Well, we design central banks to be protected from political pressures and that mostly seeking low inflation as one of its goals, right? So that's what we used to call in an independent central bank. That is easy in practice. It's worked moderately well in the Western world, but it's, uh, as we're being schooled right now on how hard this is actually in practice. So, and I'm gonna mention three risks. One is that at the end of the day, it's politicians that appoint central bankers, and more importantly, they're the ones also reappointing central bankers. So you can see that already there, there's, there's a political pressure at play. Uh, the other thing is that, well, central banks have mandates that extend beyond inflation. And that creates trade-offs and potentially with variables that are more aligned to politicians or, or fiscal authorities' priorities. And employment is a, is a good example of that. Uh, the other one is that, well, you know, even with those objectives, central bankers may be reluctant to act, to act preemptively, you know, because they understand that if uh, they, they damage the economy in other ways, you know, Congress may come back and, and, and take some of their, um, um, you know, like privileges away. Uh, and I put that in, in, in quotes. <laughs> so, so what's the risk due to fiscal policies that, well, you know, what has happened to fiscal policies that over the last two decades, outlays have turned it up, mostly due to the rise in transfers. Revenues have not increased correspondingly. So what we've seen is that after the post-war, after the World War II ended, we, we've seen zero primary deficits on average. And then we started experiencing deficits, uh, large and positive, especially after the financial crisis. So now, even before this uh, Build, Back, Build Back Better uh, law was passed, we were projecting more than 4% uh, deficits over GDP over the next decade. And, and these are high by historical standards. Now, this is not new. We did the same during the financial crisis, right? So we finance our way uh, away of that by running big fiscal deficits. What's different is that this time inflation went up. And uh, beyond the idiosyncratic factors I mentioned before that are particular of this crisis, one big difference is that, well, who's buying the debt, right? So in the financial crisis, the Fed did some quantitative easing, you know, later on, but it was mostly foreigners. There was a huge demand for U.S. denominated assets and government liabilities in particular, you know, for various reasons, one of them being, you know, a global flight to quality. Um, but now, you know, that's over. So who's buying the debt? Mostly the Fed and, you know, banks and money market mutual funds. So domestic players. The Fed either monetizes that through reserves and the private sector needs to absorb that. So, so the U.S. can no longer rely on foreign demand just to absorb whatever debt uh, we issue. So we're looking at high persistent deficits. Those are going to be absorbed by domestic participants and those imply inflationary pressures. And, you know, we have various theories to provide the link for that. 
Now, what gives me pause, of course, is that yields on government debt are still low. You shouldn't dismiss that. But we shouldn't be complacent because both theory and experience tells us that, well, when yields react, they react very suddenly. And you see that, for example, during sovereign debt crisis, right? So, so the sovereign debt uh, premium goes up very rapidly. And once you see that, it's already too late. Um, in addition, and it's something that John actually alluded to, you know, we printed money <laughs> in a more traditional sense, right? So you track any monetary aggregate, let's take M2, and if you track the accumulated deficits, actually they move together pretty well. So you see a jump during April and June of 2020, and then you see that after that, it's been growing at an accelerated pace relative to the pre-pandemic uh, you know, phase. So I, I call this almost a textbook example of a helicopter drop. The question, which is not trivial, is to say, well, is this going to be saved or, or spent? Uh, inflation may suggest that, well, maybe this is being spent. Consumption data is still not really confirming that, that story that well, but I would say that's the risk for the future is that, yeah, eventually this, this might be spent and it's going to create in additional, you know, uh, inflationary expenditures. So let me conclude uh, in the last few minutes uh, talking about Fed credibility and the new monetary framework, which I think is uh, kind of creating a, a few more problems to the current situation. So both in, in reality and in our theories, uh, what's the central bank's desire, uh, inflation rate or its target, it plays a critical role. It either anchors what we expect it to do in the future or, or lends credibility for people to know what's going to happen in the future. So, so, so credibility is really important. We moved away from the previous framework, which said, well, we're going to target 2% inflation. Uh, we can debate whether it was an actual target or a ceiling. But, you know, I, I think the market and, and agents understood what the Fed meant by achieving low and stable inflation. Now we move to a different framework in which periods of low inflation are expected to be followed by periods of higher inflation. Why? Because the new framework says what we want to do, as you know, what the Fed wants to do is to have 2% inflation on average. Now, what does that mean? So how much inflation is the Fed willing to tolerate? That's not specified. So when I average the last two years of shortfalls, am I willing to accept 5%, 10%? That's, that's unknown. For how long? How long am I averaging inflation over time? That's another unknown. So you know, in the, in, in, now, right now and in the next few months, I think these boundaries are gonna be determined by Fed action, right? So the Fed by, you know, signaling when it's going to ra uh, raise rates is, is going to you know, determine what the boundaries of that framework are. The risk of force is that the Fed will act too late. Um, to make things even more complicated, you know, the Fed has a dual mandate. Arguably, there's a third one on financial stability, but there's a dual mandate on inflation and employment. And in the past, you know, again, we kind of understood what that meant, uh, what full employment meant. So let me finish with a quote from the new framework. It says, the maximum level of employment is a broad-based and inclusive goal that is not directly measurable and changes over time, owing largely to non-monetary factors that affect the structure and dynamics of the labor market. I don't know what that means. I don't know if the market knows what it means. And I think it adds to the confusion of what the new framework implies for monetary policy. And that's, that, that I think is, is, is a huge risk uh, because we are under a new situation with a new monetary framework and the market not really understanding where we stand. And with that, I conclude. Thank you very much, Fernando. Uh, we'll hear from uh, Mark Sobel now. Thank you. Um, it's a great pleasure to be here today, even if virtually. Um, 
I have to say, I've never had much interaction with the uh, Cato Institute before, aside from reading uh, David Beckworth uh, tweets. But um, I've been long familiar um, because I once met William Niskanen in the 1980s, um, before Cato's founding. I was in the Japan desk at Treasury when everybody was concerned about uh, Japan being number one. And U.S. protectionism was rising, and I was sitting behind uh, the Treasury Undersecretary testifying along Nisk Cannon. And there was a break, and Nisk Cannon offered a unique perspective on America's protectionist forces uh, for me that I still remember to this day. He said, "We all know that the balance of payments balances. I don't know why we bother keeping balance of payments statistics." So. Um, so I wrote a commentary uh, over a year ago, the misnomer of central bank uh, independence, and it caught the eye of Jim Dorn. And I want to thank him for all of his support um, with this conference. And uh, that was really the topic of the first panel. But uh, my views on fiscal dominance, which is the topic of this panel, really start there. And I have to say, I don't like the term central bank independence, since it suggests that central banks are unfettered and unaccountable. The Fed operates in an accountability framework. Uh, board members are chosen by the executive. They're approved by Congress. The dual mandate was set by Congress. The chair testifies twice annually, et cetera. So the Fed has instrument independence, and that's worth preserving. Uh, I believe the Fed, if able alone to use its instruments to achieve the dual mandate, is more capable than otherwise to take decisions benefiting America's long-term interests, free from short-term political pressures. Uh, you know, I'm skeptical about monetary policies being subjected to rules or automaticity as underlying structures and relationship changes change and there's economic shocks. Um, but there's also ample history showing that when major shocks hit the U.S. economy, Congress may examine and change the Fed's operating framework. So if you look at the post-global financial crisis uh, period, there was the Dodd-Frank Act and there were these 13-3 debates, for example and look at the arrangements that uh, predated the 51 um, Treasury Fed Accord, or the pressures that Nixon placed on uh, Chairman Burns and the harmful consequences, um, a development avoided by the current Fed despite President Trump's enormous pressures. Now, um, for two decades, I oversaw US relations at the staff level in the Treasury with the IMF, uh, we think of the U.S. as different from others, and in some ways that's true, but I don't think we should avoid the evidence from every corner of the world about what happens when countries face large debts, their pressures to turn to monetary policy, monetary financing, and inflation or currency crashes or financial repression uh, can ensue. So I'm not saying we're Argentina, Brazil, or Mexico, but we did have our crisis in the late 70s and uh, we see the role of political pressure on the Fed or the possibility that Congress can change the rules of the game. I am not worried now, underscore now, about fiscal dominance causing uh, a sustained uh, outbreak of inflation in the U.S. Um, I, I'm concerned about fiscal drag next year. I don't worry about multi-year financing of infrastructure investments that pay for themselves. Uh, we have the deepest, most liquid capital markets in the world. We have the world's uh, reserve and financing currency. We issue the form of safe asset. Our debt and deficits have soared, and appropriately so to stave off a catastrophic shortfall in pandemic-induced private demand. Um, and we've 
issued treasuries, considerably financed in part by QE. Um, years ago, Rogoff and Reinhardt wrote about 90% debt GDP ratio as a sign of pending stress. A few years ago, the IMF would have seen uh, debt GDP ratio of over 100% as problematic for an advanced economy. Our debt ratio now is 100% of GDP, uh, and yet interest rates are low. Yes, they'd be higher without QE, but our stars come down. Real rates are highly negative. Um, and whereas debt service in the early 90s was 3% of GDP on a debt stock around 40% of GDP, debt service now is around 1.5%. So I, I think we have uh, plenty of fiscal space. But we can't be complacent over the long haul. Uh, and many factors give me pause that fiscal dominance at some future point uh, might become an issue, undermining the Fed's instrument independence and creating pressures for inflation or financial repression. So uh, a main concern uh, isn't about um, such events unfolding now, but more in the 2030 to 2050 period, we've already seen CBO estimate that the debt GDP ratio, which should be flattish this decade, uh, could rise between 2030 and 2050 from slightly over 100% of GDP to um, 200% of GDP. Um, our political class seems increasingly unable to chart a responsible path forward. Entitlement programs are growing rapidly, especially with an aging population. Uh, given vested interests among older Americans and their political clout, it's difficult to touch these. There's little appetite to cut defense spending. Interest payments must be made. Uh, we face other various needs. Um, we have one party that refuses to back tax hikes and seemingly focuses on tax cuts despite uh, little apparent economic benefit and regardless of the deficit impact. It has little appetite for actually identifying and implementing concrete spending cuts. The other party wishes to boost social spending, but also is skittish about compensating spending cuts as well as raising revenues unless they impact the top one or 2%. There's lots of accounting gimmickry. You implement a tax cut or a program, but only for a few years so that it gets financed in a 10 year window, though everybody knows or expects the program to be extended. And then rosy scenarios can be another form of gimm gimmickry. And, and given our political polarization, the default mode of the US political system is often to ignore budgetary rhythmic and treat deficits as residual, allowing debt to rise. Um, and Stabilization policy is not really used to frame fiscal policy. And this reminds me of two things from my IMF past. Uh, one, you know, an IMF mission chief applying realistic adjustments to country assumptions and concluding the numbers don't add up. And two, during US Article 4 sessions, the IMF, you know, telling us that the US doesn't have a real fiscal framework, the 10 year budget paths are viewed as kind of an arithmetic exercise without concrete underpinnings. And since in the US, R has historically been less than G, some have correctly pointed out that in principle, financial repression can help reduce debt burdens. However, the fact that R minus G is less than zero, zero doesn't mean debt burdens will decline if deficits are going uh, strongly. And furthermore, um, and some of our uh, previous speakers have alluded to this, in focusing on today's low debt or service burdens, one can't simply assume low interest rates and negative real rates are a permanent feature of the economic landscape. 
Nor can one assume that the Fed's considerable balance sheet will generate strong Fed profits to provide the Treasury with a large below the mean line means of financing for the budget. Complicating this conversation, uh, fiscal and monetary policy work hand in hand, even if we try to treat them a bit separately. But the lines between the two are increasingly blurred, especially since the global financial crisis. Monetary policy can create fiscal space. QE supports treasury issues. There's active discussion in policy and academic circles about coordination of fiscal and monetary policies, especially at the zero lower or effective bound. The Fed's alphabet soup of facilities entailed quasi-fiscal activities, even if Treasury took first loss provisions in many cases. And Fed monetary policy is also seen as necessary to provide a put for financial markets. And then there's discussion about yield curve control, which Japan already practices, and some feel the ECB does so as well in effect, especially to keep the peripheral bond yields in check. So uh, let me conclude. Um, I'm not worried about fiscal dominance today, sacrificing the Fed's instrument independence and causing our political class to force the Fed into financial repression or uh, resulting in an outburst of sustained inflation. And I underscore the word sustained and we can have big debates about team transitory and team persistence and all that. My concern is that America's polarized political class has seemingly lost its ability to take responsibility for sound and prudent fiscal management. Instead, we're locked into feuds over the allocative and distributive roles of fiscal policy, and it's not doing a good job confining these battles within a fiscal envelope for stabilization purposes. Um, there's little effort to find a, a good consensus on stabilization policy. And we're subjected now instead to political red lines with little overlap. And for me, frankly, incredulous debates about defaulting in the name of fiscal responsibility. So in these circumstances, and given the outlook for debt in the coming decades, America's political class might find it easier to lean on the Fed at some point, which after all is predominantly a creature of Congress, than to take fiscal responsibility. Um, I think the Fed's done a, a very good job in past decades. It's got a talented team. Um, it's benefited America tr tr tremendously. And um, I worry about our rampant fiscal policy inadequacies. And I'll turn it back over to you, Greg. Thanks very much, uh, Mark. And uh, finally, we'll turn to uh, David Beckworth. Thank you, Greg, and thank you, uh, Jim Dorn, for inviting me, and it's great to be a part of this panel. I have a slide presentation, so I'm going to quickly pull that up. All right, so our panel is on the question of fiscal dominance and inflation returning to the U.S. So is, is it returning? And I have a few slides here that um, have already been touched on, but I want to begin this conversation by looking at the developments that have motivated why we're talking about this today. Um, as previously mentioned, debt to GDP is close to 100%. Um, it went up in the early 2000s. There were tax cuts. There was the Great uh, Recession deficits. There's Trump's tax cuts. There was the pandemic relief packages. And this is even clear if you look at the primary deficit as a percent of GDP since 2000. You can see these multiple dips going on there. 
And as mentioned, the CBO does not paint a pretty picture going forward. So these, there's gonna be persistent primary deficits moving forward. Now they're gonna be lower than they have the past few years, to put things in perspective, but all of this gives rise to concerns about fiscal dominance. So as mentioned already, fiscal dominance is when the Fed becomes subservient to Treasury, to the needs of Congress, and loses its ability to focus on price stability. It, it becomes a, an, a passive supporter of keeping the federal government nominally solvent. Uh, it has to increase senior ridge to do that. And that's the concern that's being raised here today. And it's a, it's a legitimate one, given this trajectory of the public uh, financial health of the country. With that said, we can also take a look at what the Treasury market, at least implicitly, is saying about that. And looking at this chart here, the 30-year Treasury is around 2%. The 10-year right now is around um, 1.6. It's lower than it was before the uh, pandemic. It's following what looks like a, a downward, inevitable trend. So it raises a question, what, what do they see that we don't see? Um, why aren't they panicking yet? They haven't even blinked an eye, it seems. And, and, you know, I don't want to dismiss them out of hand because they have skin in the game. They're a market. These are people who are living, who are managing you know, retirement funds. They seem to, at least the, the implication here is they don't see high inflation that would emerge from fiscal dominance. Um, if I look at a professional forecast consensus, they tell a similar story. Now, this is a chart I pulled together from the survey professional forecasters. And it's a term structure. So what it does, it shows the inflation rate forecasted for each year over the next decade. So if you look at the very bottom blue line, you see at the beginning of this year, they were forecasting 2% PCE inflation. Well, they were wrong. And as, as the year goes on, you can see these quarters that the forecast for inflation in 2021 and 2022, it goes up. As reality dawns on these forecasters, they adjust their forecast. But what I want you to focus on uh, beyond that is to look at what they see 2023 and, and beyond. They see a return to 2% uh, in inflation. So they also, like the markets, aren't seeing fiscal dominance giving rise to inflation. Now, they may, may be wrong. Both markets and forecasters have been wrong in the past. Maybe they'll be wrong again. But at least for now, they're saying, hey, we still think this 2% inflation target is credible. If they didn't, they would have had a different um, forecast for trend inflation moving forward. So why are they seeing things this way? Why aren't they as concerned as, the, as many are about fiscal dominance? Well, I want to answer that question by drawing on some work from by David Allen Delfato, and, and he had a recent paper looking at this issue. It's, I believe it was called "Some Unpleasant." Is it time for some unpleasant fiscal or monetary arithmetic? Drawing upon Sargent and Wallace's famous paper with that title, and he shows in a model and, and doing some clever tricks that if it's the case that real demand for Treasuries has risen over this period and going forward then it could be the case as well that the debt to GDP ratio increases. If we see stable low interest rates, we see stable inflation over the, these again, longer horizons, it could be expectations about real demand for treasuries is, is offsetting uh, the huge run-up in public debt. So just to put this graphically, maybe too simple, when we think about you know, public debt weighing on the U.S., we're thinking often about the supply of it. And what Ando Faldo shows in his paper is we've got to think about the real demand for debt. So I, I want to flesh this out a little bit more, and I'm going to be treading on treacherous ground here because I'm on a panel with John Cochran. I want to invoke the fiscal theory of the price level. I learned a lot from him about this, and he has a book coming out that's really great. So I encourage you to take a look at it. But just quickly to think about what, what does this theory say? And uh, as you see, the D term there is 
public debt, think of it as treasury liabilities, Fed liabilities over the price level P, and it's equal to the expected um, net present value of primary surplus. So as John mentioned, this theory says, look, the, the level, the real value of debt is going to be driven by the expectation of future primary surpluses. Or as John often will say, it's like a stock price. It's the, nom- the, the debt is a residual claimant to future primary surpluses. And as a result, the P in that denominator um, has to adjust accordingly. Now, this is a very elegant, clean theory, but it has a hard time um, like explaining the case of Japan. Um, I know John has an explanation for this, but he looked at Japan. It's had decade after decade after decade of persistent primary deficits, and yet we see low inflation there. So this has given a motivation to some people, including Marcus Brunermeyer and his co-authors, and then the a recent uh, our new governor at the Federal Reserve, Chris Waller, and a co-author, and they've they've modified a more general version, and they call it the fiscal theory of the price level with a bubble. And when they do this, they say, look, we can explain why. Treasury yields are low, why inflation is low. So they take that, that same setup and they add this term. Now, if you get in the math, it's called a bubble term, but effectively what it's doing, it's capturing the added value treasury securities pay, uh, play in terms of transaction uh, services as collateral, effectively as a form of money. And so as long as there's some demand for these, these government liabilities that arises from their, their, their uh, role as a form of money, um, then the calculus is very different. And I, I want to just take this and I'm going to manipulate this and I, I'm not going to spend a lot of time because this is a presentation, you can see it in the paper. But what this effectively amounts to, let me just go over here. I'm, I'm rearranging the equations. I'm isolating the price level by itself. That, that numerator up there shows the current level of debt and then the price level times this, this real primary deficit. I substituted deficits in for the, uh, the surplus. You can see it in the paper, but in any event, that, that numerator effectively can be, can be seen as the expected future path of, of government debt, nominal government debt, whereas the denominator can be seen as the expected real liquidity demand for the treasury debt. So I'm just going to relabel that just to make this a little more intuitive. So the expected future path of the nominal supply of debt over the expected future real liquidity demand for treasuries. Now, if, if you remember good old monetarism, this should look very familiar. Monitors would say the price level is a difference between the nominal supply of money, less real money demand. And while this equation is showing is it's a similar relationship, except now we're expanding the definition of money to treasury securities and Fed liabilities. Uh, we can take this and turn it into an inflation rate, take the first difference natural logs. Um, and what we see is the inflation rate is equal to the expected future path of debt minus the future, the change in the future real liquidity demand for it. Now, we've already seen the, uh, the CBO's projection, and I, I'm just going to, you know, for the sake of fairness, I'm going to also put up a, a, a chart I saw Jason Furman do on Twitter, and this is the net deficit increase from the uh, spending last year, last two years, as well as going forward with President Biden, and it shows over time that it's, it's a small um, part of, of GDP. So the, you know, the $2 trillion number you divide over 10 years, it begins to fade pretty quickly. But there still is, there still are persistent deficits already baked in for other reasons. So I don't want to dismiss them. But this, what, what does this theory tell us? Well, it tells us that one reason, one explanation for the low inflation in these market forecasts and the consensus forecasts is that maybe they're implicitly seeing a real future demand for treasury debt. And I'm just going to go through three um, possible sources. They may not always 
be with us. Um, and I explain it in more detail, but I'm gonna go first with safe assets to manage. Many of you know this, there's been a, a lot of research on this, but this short story of it, again, I can, you can look at the paper for more details, but uh, there's emerging, the emerging world needs safe stores of value, the aging of the planet, um, financial regulations, increased risk aversion, all these things have given rise to safe asset demand. Like the, the literature calls us the safe asset shortage. So you might say, well, how can there be a shortage with all that run up in public debt? It seems like that would be enough. And I would agree, it, it seems on the surface, but again, if safe asset excess demand has been satiated, why are yields continually low? It doesn't look, it doesn't create this picture of a satiated demand for safe assets. Another potential feature source of real demand for treasuries, and this isn't the best title, but this captures the idea we have this global financial dollar system. And the Fed stepped in in 2008, as Fernando mentioned, as well as 2020, it's backstopped it. And on the margin, investors now are more comfortable holding dollars in their portfolios. So this is going to increase the demand for dollar-denominated assets and expand the network of the dollar. And in turn, that provides some added increased demand for you know, the hierarchy, the top of that hierarchy, which is U.S. government liabilities. So the, it, ironically, the Fed backstopping uh, global dollar funding markets in 2020 and 2008 has on the margin increased the demand for uh, dollar assets and in turn improved the, the fiscal condition of the government. Um, finally, I'll call this a lock-in effect, and I'm going to show a few slides in a minute, but just the scale of dollars, is, it just dwarfs anything out there. So if you were looking for a competitor or an alternative, where would you go? Now, there could be exchange rate effects that could change this. There could be prices, but the scale is so large, it's hard to envision this. Uh, Arvind Krishnamurthy has a paper where he, he gets into this, and I discuss it in my paper, but he calls this, he show, has a model where he shows you can end up in a nowhere else to go equilibrium because the biggest provider of public debt, there really isn't a substitute on that scale. So just, just to highlight this quickly, I'll try to wrap this up. Um, this here shows US financial liabilities to the rest of the world. The dark blue line shows treasuries, GSEs, currencies. This goes to the second quarter. And through the second quarter, all, all of these assets have continued to grow. Now, the, the, the two blue ones at the bottom are fixed income. That light blue one at the top is corporate equities. So these are liabilities the rest of the world is holding. It continues to grow. The world continues to take our assets. Even treasuries have picked up this last quarter. Um, but in general, the world is still clamoring for our fixed income. Now, let's put this in perspective. Relative to other countries, where do they stand in this Q2? Well, the closest is the euro, or euro area, and it's about half the size of the U.S. Now, there are other dollar assets besides those that we in the U.S., you know, give to the rest of the world or they they, they, they uh, get from us. And I'm gonna to go to the BIS real quick to highlight this fact. So this here shows a measure of bank loans and debt securities. And this is from the Global Liquidity Indicator Database. And it shows um, credit in dollars created outside the US. So this is outside and you can see this number has grown rapidly in absolute size. It's much, much larger than the Euro or Yen. And secondly, it continues to grow. There's this path dependence, this lock-in effect I was describing. Now, if we take currency outside the U.S., add it to credit creation uh, inside the U.S., we get this remarkable number here. So this is the total dollar credit by bank loans and debt securities from the BIS. And as of a Q2 this year, there's 75.6 trillion. The next closest is the euro at 30 trillion, and then 21 trillion. So Making a transition from the dollar is not going to be an easy task, even if there were a, a huge fiscal 
um, dominance, there was a run on dollar. It's, it's not clear you'd get an alternative safe asset that could quickly emerge on this level. So this creates that, excuse me, this creates that lock-in effect I was mentioning. So just in, in simple terms, one way to interpret these forecasts is the expected real demand for government liabilities is approximately equal to real debt supply going forward. Okay, implications. I'm going to wrap up with my implications. Um, one implication of this understanding of fiscal theory of the price level with a bubble is that if we hadn't had that run up in debt, we may have even had lower inflation. Um, that's one implication that falls out of this discussion. Um, if these forecasts are right, we may end up back where we were before the pandemic. As John said, there definitely will be a permanent price level increase. But after that, all bets are off. Now, again, this, this is subject, of course, to that real demand being there. And, and finally, this goes to the point Mark was mentioning, we need to plan ahead for the end of this exorbitant privilege. This probably won't be with us forever, even though there are huge hurdles that I mentioned, the lock-in effect. And I, I, I want to just build on what Mark said. Mark says the political class has not shown itself able to develop a responsible budget plan. And, and I would observe one of the key reasons for that is this demand for dollar-denominated assets. It enables Congress. If you face low financing costs and you're not worrying about the interest expense of debt, it really makes it easier for you to, to kind of spend recklessly and on a whim. So I think we need to get away from that, um, come up with some mechanism to save this, kind of like in Norway, they say they have a sovereign wealth fund for the oil proceeds. We should be tapping into this exorbitant privilege and saving for a rainy day. All right, on that, I will end and I will stop sharing. Turn this back over to uh, Greg. You're on mute, Greg. Yeah, yeah. Uh, thanks very much, David. So those were four terrific uh, uh, presentations. And uh, also, they were also very brief, for which I was pleasantly surprised. Thanks very much. It gives me more time to like us have a broader discussion. Now, uh, first, a little message to the audience, a reminder that you can send us questions that I will try and share with the panelists. And you do that by um, uh, sending it via um, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube using the hashtag Cato Moncon, spelled capital C A T O, capital M O N, capital C O N. And you can also use the uh, chat boxes on YouTube, Facebook, and Slido, or Slido. I'm not sure how to pronounce that. Um, but let me uh, 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 dive right into this. And John, um, you have put yourself out there as the uh, brave uh, defender and advocate of fiscal theory of the price level. So this one's for you. Uh, and I'm sure you get this one a lot. But the Debt doubled as a share of GDP during the over the course of the global financial crisis, and the Fed monetized a ton of that stuff. And we had, you know, a lot of warnings that we would have high inflation re result. There was the notorious letter signed by uh, four uh, Republican congressional leaders telling Bernanke that he was essentially uh, monetizing uh, reckless deficits, and it was going to lead to debauch. He was going to debauch the currency. That didn't happen. Inflation was lower over the next 10 years than it was over the last 10 years. And, you know, as I think uh, 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 Fernando and uh, David have both alluded to, we have international instances like Japan of much larger debt and no result in inflation. So, John, what is, how do you get those historical experiences to fit with your very high degree of conviction that the high debt levels we're seeing now are going to lead to a sustained period of inflation? Um, the conviction isn't as strong <laughs> as you think. Uh, and thanks, David, by the way, for the shout out to fiscal theory. And I, and I will, we won't get it. The fiscal theory of the bubble uh, works fine. That's in the, in the book too. 
Uh, in fact, um, the bubble doesn't is quantitatively not that important uh, for, for understanding these methods. But with, with that said, let me uh, address the question. Fortunately, fiscal theory <clears throat> is not so dumb as to predict a tight relationship between debt deficits and inflation, because if you look out the window, there is no tight relationship between debt deficits and inflation. The key thing, which is, is hard, is it's debt relative to people's expectations that the debt will be paid back. So if people think you, you can have enormous amounts of debt, the US after World War II had 140% debt to GDP ratio, uh, but people thought the US was good for it and had, as we saw, we've returned to primary surpluses, we've returned to unbelievable growth in a fairly deregulated economy. There was every reason to believe the US would pay a lot of it back, didn't result in inflation. So inflation happens, uh, when people look at that debt and say, mm, I don't think it, I don't think they're good for it. They're not going to pay it back. So the, the fact that we're seeing people willing to lend the government enormous amounts of money at low interest rates, I don't know how the U.S. is going to pay it back, but people who are lending money to the U.S. seemed to until 2020. Uh, another way of putting that is, is the present value that uh, David showed. There's, there's an expected surpluses and there's also a discount rate. <laughs> And uh, interest rates in Japan are very, very low. People are willing to hold Japanese government debt at very low rates of return. Uh, and so that's it's the discount rate term in the present value that makes sense of Japan, as until recently in the US. People are willing to lend the US enormous amounts of money at very low rates of return. They seemed to think it will be paid back. Now that's when that changes, uh, when people lose faith that the US does actually have a plan to sooner or later pay that debt back, uh, then their willingness to lend at very low rates evaporates suddenly. And that's the puzzle of inflation is it is inherently unpredictable. If you knew inflation was gonna go up tomorrow, you'd raise your prices today. <laughs> that's why yield curves have never forecast inflation in the past. Uh, that's why it always seems to come like the Spanish Inquisition uh, out of no nowhere. So, uh, and third, I'd say the sustainability of debt is not just a fiscal theory question. So the, the equation debt, present value, debt is present value future surpluses, that is in all theories uh, of, of the economy. So, um, uh, is Japanese debt sustainable uh, is not just a fiscal theory question. It's a puzzle for all of us. Why are people willing to lend to all of our governments at such unbelievably low rates with very little plan of how to pay it back? And when will they wake up and say, you know what? I want to get out before the next guy get out before the next guy gets out and everybody else figures out they don't have a plan to, to pay. That's the danger we face. So there's not a specific debt to inflation. There's a debt puts you in, in danger of a run situation. Uh, any of you others want to uh, weigh in on what John just said? Um, well, well John, Greg, I, yes, it, yeah, it, it, I, would, I would just echo again, if, if government debt provides a service you, you got to, other than a claim on future primary surpluses, that has to be taken into consideration. And, and there's a large literature on the convenience yield, the moneyness of, of treasuries. And I think that that is something that is important. In, no, and fiscal theory includes that. That's part of the low discount rate for government debt. Um, David said something really brilliant that I want to echo. <laughs> low oh, interest costs. When you think about our government's fiscal policy, they seem to be responding just to interest costs on the debt. It's sort of like the household in 2006 who said, hey, honey, look, the teaser rate on this, on this mortgage is so low, let's go all in. And that has been the discussion in Washington. All we worry about is interest costs. Well, interest costs can change suddenly as that household in, in 2006 found out. Um, 
Thanks. Uh, David, I want to start with you on this next question, because I think it goes right to the heart of what we see in the markets right now. Everybody here seems to agree that, well, first of all, we know for a fact inflation is higher. And I think that even that there's widespread consensus is going to be high for a while, and that the risks are very much weighted to the upside over the medium to long term. We can actually see that even as I think um, you pointed out, the uh, inflation expectations in the bond market and professional forecasts are relatively tame when it's over the long term. But I think it's fair to say that the risks are weighted to the upside. You know, uh, three bond market is forecasting 3% CPI inflation for the next three years. And yet the bond market is also forecasting very low real policy rates over the next 10 years. They're deeply negative now, and they're projected to remain negative for the next four or five years and be roughly zero over the next five to 10 years. So you have this puzzle now where everybody seems to agree that the risks of inflation are weighted to the upside, deficits are larger, debts are larger, and yet real rates are, if anything, lower than they were 10 years ago. And that is incorporating whatever expectation they have for the Fed to respond to this high inflation. What can explain why real yields, why the mar- is the market just out of its mind? Why does it think that real rates are going to be so negative given the backdrop now? And I don't just mean negative, but David, to your point, I get the sort of safe asset, uh, uh, the, the demand for safe assets, why that can explain low real yields. But they're even lower when they were ten, five to 10 years ago when they were fewer safe assets around. Well, um, am I on? You can hear me? Okay. Um, Greg, I, I would, I would, my first co- response would be that we see that in the tips market, right? And there's a lot of noise in that market. And, and I would argue the Fed has played a, a role in that. If you look at the Fed's share of tips during the pandemic, it shot from about 8% to 20% of the market. So I think we have to take what the tips market is saying with a, with a, you know, some caution. And there are models out there. Um, there's the, uh, I call it the DKW model for the Board of Governors. There's others, Cleveland Fed. They go and they try to adjust for liquidity premiums and all these distortions. And if you look at those, then rates aren't as negative and as, as shocking as they look at, at, at kind of the headline um, tips number. So I would say first, take the tips with a grain of salt. And that's why I put the nominal treasury yield. It's a much deeper, thicker market. To me, that's a, that's a more informative look at that as opposed to some of these others. But maybe go to the more fundamental part part of your question. Yes, inflation risk are to the upside for the next few years, but I, I can tell a story. So I'll take the other side of what was said earlier. Um, fiscal stimulus paid apart. I think this huge switch in consumer spending from services to um, consumer durables paid apart. And that, that second one is much more pandemic related in terms of people don't want to go to the service sector. Now they're engaged working at home. They need more durables. And I think both of those things are going to fade eventually. Um, the fiscal, the, those excess savings, cash loans are going to wind down, and eventually we'll see a, a switch back. And I would, I would highlight this, and I put it on Twitter several times. Consumer durables is driving most of the high inflation right now, an inordinate amount. And if you look at the uh, trend inflation rate for consumer durables from 1995 to 2020, it was negative. They had actually a deflationary trend. So what we're experiencing now is really an anomaly. And, and to assume that it's going to stay this high, for me, takes a big leap of faith. I think the five-year treasuries, which are high, are reflecting these near-term pressures. But that's why I, look, I like to look at the five-year, five-year forward with the qualifiers I already mentioned that tips aren't the best measure. Could I add just something quickly from my many years of, of finance? Um, one thing we know for sure is I just shared a, a graph for you guys. 
Well, one thing we know is that is that asset prices are terrible forecasters of things, uh, interest rates in particular. Just look look at the past of where the Fed funds futures has forecast Fed funds and totally failed to do it. Uh, interest rates are just uh, are terrible forecasters. Here, the graph shows you. I've got here the yields, ten year yield and uh, inflation, and look through the 19, 1970s. The 10-year yield never rose ahead of inflation. They never saw it coming. We call this risk premiums. Behavioralists call it nuttiness of markets. But, but interest rates are, are long-term rates are just terrible forecasters of future short-term rates. And, and uh, even fancy models don't unwind that well. So just uh, that's why it always comes as a surprise, right? See, see here, right here, the 10 uh, 10-year yields are low, and then inflation, inflation just the red line just goes up. Uh, the blue line never moves ahead of the red line, either going up or on the downward direction. Um, thanks very much. Uh, did any of you, did Mark, Mark or Fernando, did either of you have, want to jump in there on the real rate question? Okay. Um, so I'm going to uh, uh, incorporate some questions that we have from our uh, audience here because they kind of relate to things that are on my mind right now. And Mark, I'm going to uh, read this question to you because it relates in a general sense to the question of pressure on the Fed, which is an issue I think that you're very worried about, uh, that you've wanted to uh, bring to our attention. So Nikhil on Slido asks, would Congress leaning on the Fed within the current framework lead to more volatile inflation expectations and would this in turn cause broader welfare losses uh, rather than a just a higher stable inflation rate? Now, I think Congress leaning on the Fed is really the key issue here, and it all relates to the extent to which there is pressure from the political class to make the Fed follow whatever its priorities are, which detract from its focus on inflation and full employment. And specifically, Mark, I actually want to uh, bring this very up to date, because as you know, the president has to make a decision soon on who will lead the Fed for the next four years. The choices appear to be either reappointing the incumbent, uh, Jerome Powell, or appointing Lael Brainerd, who is currently a governor, but uh, was uh, is um, the Democrat, like the president. And if he uh, reappoints um, Lael Brainerd, um, she's considered to be a highly qualified candidate, but then Powell is as well. In essence, Biden would be sort of, um, I think, signaling that he's going to follow the Trump model of Fed chairmanship appointments from now on, rather than simply reappointing um, an incumbent who has done a fairly good job and is seen to have done, been done, done a good job, appointments will be seen through the party lens. I don't just want a good Fed, qualified Fed chairperson. I want one who's from my party and I'm responding to those in my party who want a Fed chairperson who shares my political priorities. So in your view, how will the president, if the president chooses to follow the Trump model, Will that in some sense vindicate some of the concerns that you raised with us earlier in your prepared remarks about the creeping pressure on the Fed? Uh, thank you for that question. Um, you know, I was in government for so many years and so I saw so many different people. Uh, I tend to judge people on what they do, um, not what their political affiliations are. Um, you know, all I can say is I think America's lucky. If the choice is those two people, all I can say is America's lucky to have such two such excellent uh, uh, choices. Um, and I think uh, we should focus on what they will do and not who they who they are. Um, I um, 
I do, as you say, I worry about uh, the Fed being a creature of Congress and how Congress might respond to changing situations and high debt and absolving itself of fiscal responsibility. So that remains. And I think that could, uh, as you said, uh, very much increase volatility, um, it, you know, and it could cause inflation or even financial repression, that financial repression might be the go-to vehicle to get the debt to GDP ratio down. And so those are my worry. That is my worry. It's more much more a worry of, about the future than it is now because uh, of the reasons I outlined, and I think David uh, amplified on um, considerably. Um, so back to you. Well, I'm, I'm not. I'm not just just a minute. I'm not going to mark. I'm sorry. I'm not going to let you go just there because in your remarks you were very clear about the risk of politicization, which comes partly through the appointment process. But you've just told me that you actually feel relatively confident that irrespective of how this appointment process plays out, things are going to be fine. In which case, even if Congress does get it in its head that it wants to push the Fed in this direction on monetary inflation or this direction on, on, uh, on interest rates, we shouldn't worry because the appointment process is apparently just fine. So I sense a bit of a tension between your relative equanimity about the current situation, but your sort of like more long-term concerns about politicization. Could you just, you know, um, you know, those things for me. I, I, I've just worked with so many Republicans and Democrats uh, over the years, and uh, a lot of times they end up in the same uh, place, um, or they're a little center right versus a center left. But you have decisions to make, and people make reasonable decisions, and people can disagree about reasonable decisions. As a policymaker, as a bureaucrat, I wanted to make sure the bosses were taking reasonable decisions, whether I was 100% agree with it or not, and that they were well reasoned. Um, I think that um, I, I think that whatever the result is, the Fed is going. The Fed governors, the Fed board, and it is board. It is not just one person is going to be committed to um, acting uh, in a responsible manner and conducting, you know, a, a sound monetary policy with uh, the within the framework that and uh, conditions it faces. I actually okay. think we're missing the issue here. In the Powell versus Brainer question, the issue isn't about monetary policy. The issue is, is the Fed gonna go all in on climate change policy via financial regulation? And that is, that is a really big issue. If we're worried about inflation, the question is those two versus Larry Summers uh, among Democrats, which is, but clearly this isn't a decision being made on the basis of inflation. But the financial regulation part of the Fed, that's actually in some sense more important than where interest rates going. And that, that is a big uh, question that I think is gonna drive this decision and, and what to read out of the decision. If I may add something on a similar, you know, to answer the question is, you know, when you think about an independent central bank, the idea has always been you protect the central banker from political from direct political pressure, and you give it, you know, very uh, clear objectives. You know, some some objectives on inflation, maybe some other economic goals. What the risk is is that the reappointment process itself may be a new uh, channel for which you know Congress and, and and other politicians may influence central bankers. Because now I'm worried not only about you know, uh, official metrics on which I'm being uh, judged, but also on whether I'm going to keep my job or not. So I see this as a danger, regardless of who you choose, even if you agree that both of them are qualified, the danger is, is that going to influence my decision, the fact that I'm worried about keeping my job? And I think that's a danger, you know, looking out ahead when we think about how to properly design these institutions. 
Um, uh, Fernando, I actually want to stay with you just for a moment because um, the last topic that we discussed also goes to the heart of some of the remarks you were making about essentially the risk of confusion by giving, I think, the Fed, you know, this more elaborate mandate. You specifically cited, for example, their somewhat vague definition of uh, what does full employment look like? It's inclusive, right? Uh, what, um, ex explain for us, if you could, so what are the risks of confusion? I mean, is it necessarily the case that mission creep, as I like to call it, or adding other uh, goals to the Fed's um, mandate leads to a weaker vigilance on inflation? Because you used the word confusion, which could easily go either way. Is it talk to us about how the expand, what, where, specifically, how does um, this expanding set of potential mandates, whether it's a more inclusive definition of full employment, climate, uh, or financial stability affect the uh, uh, affect the path of inflation. So, so if you think that uh, inflation depends on expectations, at least to some degree, then those expectations also depend on what you expect the Fed to do. Under you know, in response to uh, the state of the world uh, in the future. So that means that you need to have. A somewhat clear mapping between those states and what the Fed is uh, expected to do. And, uh, you know, throughout the years, the Fed, you know, has had arguably a vague mandate, which is stable inflation and full employment. And, you know, that's very vague. But, you know, with its actions, it's been clarifying what, how it interpreted those goals. Uh, after the financial crisis, it, it became even more explicit by saying, look, what we think is stable inflation or stable prices is 2% inflation. And now you move into a, a different, uh, you know, framework in which, like, like you mentioned, right, the, the employment goal becomes a bit more nebulous, right? So less ill-defined. So I, I cannot point to a particular variable as the one I, I'm going to, you know, benchmark my policy against. And, you know, on inflation, there's this thing about, you know, trying to, you know, catch up to uh, past shortages. But again, you're not specifying you know, how are you going to do that? Are you going to do that all at once? Are you going to do it over a prolonged period of time? And if so, how long? So what I think is that those, uh, that vagueness confuses, you know, the formation of expectations, which means that now when I start seeing high inflation, I have higher uncertainty about how the Fed is going to react. And that, you know, will imply that maybe we're going to see more inflation that the Fed was willing to tolerate in the beginning because expectations may be driving that a, a little bit more. So what I'm thinking is that over the next few months, we're going to start seeing, you know, some Fed action. It already started, but we're going to see where the, where the lines are drawn. And that's going to clarify a lot on what this new framework means. But in the meantime, you know, we are in a transition that perhaps is being fueled by a little bit of uh, vagueness on, on what the Fed is supposed to do. Um, the, um, actually, Ben on Slido asks the following question. What should the Fed do if the current inflation is solely a supply chain issue? And what should it do if it's some combination of factors? Uh, Fernando, do you want to answer that question? Well, I'm, I'm sure I can recommend what the Fed should do. Uh, <laughs> I realize you speak for yourself. Uh, right. So what would I do? <laughs> or, or, or let me actually, let me rephrase it a little bit. I mean, yeah. does this, is this an example of the confusion that the fact that our viewer doesn't know how the Fed would respond, is that in part because the Fed has not been clear about how it intends to fulfill its mandate? 
I mean, let's cut the Fed some slack. And, you know, this is a fast evolving situation. And even you okay. know, us, we kind of disagree on what the sources of inflation are. So David mentioned, you know, durables as a main source. I tend to think that durables is maybe half of the story, not all of it. I see more widespread uh, increase in prices, but it's true. I mean, like anything, right? If you see that all the inflation is driven by the fact that, uh, you know, we were not uh, importing things fast enough, then, you know, you have other tools. You know to deal with that and and you should use those other tools right um it's the same with you know how to deal with employment you know the fiscal authority has other tools to deal with that and maybe sometimes they're more appropriate um but if you think it's demand anymore or at least in part then you know more traditional fed actions i think are would be warranted so so a lot of what the fed has to do is not only you know to to project what it's going to do but also to interpret what the data means and perhaps it's been uh, too hard or too strong on the side that this is going to be transitory. And like I said, that's probably been driven by the fact that we see all these outliers. But, you know, as time goes by, I think the committee has been moving to something that, well, this is a bit more widespread and perhaps more prolonged. Uh, so, you know, that tells you something <laughs> about how they're going to uh, behave, right? Okay, thanks. We're uh, almost uh, out of time now. And I would like to finish this up by just asking everybody if they could answer very quickly. So. Everybody seems to realize, think that fiscal dominance, you have different views about whether or not it's a risk. What is the one indicator we should pay most close attention to as a sign that fiscal dominance is actually becoming a risk? Could each of you, starting with John, give us a very quick 25-second 20 20 answer to that? John? Oh, well, I always think we're in, in fiscal dominance. Uh, it's, it's always, <laughs> that's, in, that's uh, inflation is always and everywhere a fiscal, uh, fiscal problem. And the issue is when do people lose, lose faith that the US government is uh, on track to pay back its debts? And David's graph was pretty bad. And the CBO forecasts assume that nothing will ever go wrong again. <laughs> and uh, you know, once every decade, we seem to add another five, 10 trillion to it. Okay, uh, Fernando? I, I think the indicator is a bit more subtle, which is uh, how much attention does the Fed put on inflation? So if the narrative starts moving and, you know, the chatter starts moving away from that and including other goals, that tells you something that, well, we don't care about that, but the Fed doesn't care about that, we care about other goals. But, as, you know, the opposite is that if you see more, uh, more focus on inflation, then you see that, you know, the Fed is actually uh, fighting back that, that fiscal pressure. Thanks. Mark? Um, I'll probably be looking at uh, Treasury bond yields and whether they start uh, ratcheting up a lot higher. Okay, and David? I concur. I think they'll, they'll figure it out before we do. So I will go with Treasury yields. Okay, so notwithstanding all the criticism we heard today about the faultiness of the Treasury bond market as a forecasting device, it looks like it's the worst device possible except for all the others. Uh, thanks all four of you for just a terrific and uh, very interesting conversation about issues that are just absolutely front burner for all of us today. Uh, we are going to uh, take a 30-minute break now. Please come back at 1.15 and join us for Barry Eichengreen's keynote address, Populism and Central Banks.